You're listening to a message preached at Front Range Baptist Church by Pastor Dean Miller. It is our prayer that this message will be a help and an encouragement to you in your spiritual walk. Now, here's Pastor Miller. Anybody uh, have a testimony tonight? Is something that the Lord's done in your heart this week? Or maybe an opportunity to share the gospel that you've had this week? Okay. All right, very good. Um, I've had some, I, had, I, just, I just met a young man here that's been coming to our church. I met him here tonight at 5.15, and we've we fellowshiped. Um, he's got an amazing testimony, saved out of an Islamic family, Islamic background. Um, I'll tell you more about that. We may have him be able to share some of his testimony with us on the week that we do Islam. Okay? He's got some really... Really neat things, how God, how God dealt with him and how he got saved. And I just, tonight I just wept in my office listening to his uh, testimony. And the power of the gospel is, man, we, we, we are playing with dynamite when we have the gospel. So um, looking, looking forward tonight. Tonight we're going to talk about um, reaching atheists. Um, and this is going to be a, a wonderful, wonderful lesson. And I hope that, you know, again, I'll preface this before we jump in tonight. These classes that we're doing, we've called them advanced classes, but these are not master's classes. All right. We're not jumping into like um, we're not jumping into theories of uh, understanding religious studies and d- diving deep into what people really believe and all that. We're looking at it from a standpoint of. What they, what they hold to, what their fundamental beliefs are, like last week with the LDS, we went through fundamental beliefs. We can't make the assumption that they all believe. Uh, Miss Laura Lee, they're, they're getting copies that we, we ran out, and so they're bringing some more in in just a second. Unless you were going somewhere else. I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. Uh, but, but so we don't want to make the assumption that, that they all believe the same thing. You can't make that assumption. So we're going to go through major tenets of those faiths, and we're going to primarily focus on us as a Christian. How do we get to a place where we can, we can share the gospel effectively with them without, without getting into major arguments? And we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to look at some things. Because we're not, we have to be careful as Christians because God did not call us to be defense attorneys. So we're not defending God. God doesn't need a defense. All right. So we're not defense attorneys, and we're not prosecuting attorneys. So we're not out telling the world what they did wrong. Uh, Jesus did not come in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we're not the defense attorney for God. We're not the prosecuting attorney for the sinner. And we're certainly not the judge. So who do we, who do we then become in the courtroom of life and with the gospel? We're the witness. We're just called to the stand to testify, I was once blind and now I see. <laughs> I was one way and now I'm another and this is what Jesus did for me, all right? So we're, we're looking at this through those, through those lenses and we, we want to get into, this to me is probably the most, um, this is probably the most relative to the area and the region that we live in is dealing with people who basically are content with living a godless life. Whether they profess atheism or not, they're at best 
hedonistic or paganistic and, and really God is not in the equation. So this is extremely appropriate for the day and age that we live and the city that we live in of reaching people for Christ. In the last two months, I've had the privilege of leading two atheists to Christ. to baptize one of them Sunday. Um, Abraham looked at me right in the eye, no stammer, no stutter, no hesitation, bold as a lion, there is no God. And three and a half hours later, with tears coming down his face, sweat on his eyebrow, he picked up his hands and went, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. (laughs) And, And prayed a prayer of repentance and faith and trusted Christ and then said, when can I get baptized? And, uh, and to see God do a work in his life. Um, I'm going to preach a message on this subject one day, um, it probably as an evangelistic message uh, in a revival somewhere, but I was meeting with a, another young man. Um, I, I, can't, I can't really talk about his identity at this point just because he, he hasn't been to our church yet. He's not been baptized yet. I've been praying for him. He wants to, but because of his particular stage of life and what he's involved in, he can't. Um, he just can't be here. So, but I talk with him all the time, and this is probably one of the most, this is probably one of the most intellectual and um, deep thinkers that I've ever, for, for a young man, 23 years old, for a young man, as he's reading his Bible now, if I could just, if I had time to go through all the text messages that I'm getting from him, and his pre- of what he's bringing out of the scripture. Um, he is such an in-depth, God has great plans for this young man. But we were sitting in a restaurant uh, here, in, here in Fort Collins. And on a Sunday night, uh, a friend of his, a mutual friend, called me and said he's got a ton of questions. He's an atheist, but he's asking a bunch of questions. I think it would be good for you to come and talk to him because I don't have the answers. So I Finished our message on Sunday night online. I drove over there, sat in the restaurant. Three and a half hours, four hours, I think it was, and we went through all of it. Some of the things I'm going to show you tonight, I worked through both with both of these atheists, some of these things. And um, at the very end, he said, well, I'm going to go back to my dorm, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to pray, and I'll tell you about it. I'll call you and tell you about it. And I said, no, 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 you don't need to go back to your dorm. The question is right now, are you a sinner? Is Jesus the Son of God? Did he rise again from the dead after paying for your penalty of sin at Calvary? Do you believe that? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I believe that. I said, then you need to right now call upon the name of the Lord to save you right here. And this is what he did. And I'm going to preach a message on this topic. He looked around the restaurant and he went, right here for all eternity? And I said, right here for all eternity. And just like that, man, he bowed his head and trusted Christ as his Savior. So anyway, so I'm, I'm excited about jumping into this tonight, okay? Uh, let's, let's bow for prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into the lesson. If you need a lesson, um, Brother Stallings uh, is such a faithful deacon, a good servant, and has been diligent to run copies. Thank you for being a good secretary. All right, if you need some, we'll get these up here. And then you got your notebook, so you can add these two and keep, keep track of them. 
Okay, let's bow for prayer as he's passing these out. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of knowing you and knowing the gospel, knowing that we are sons and daughters in Christ. Lord, that we have, we have been partakers of the grace of God. And Lord, we have a great privilege and yet responsibility to share the gospel with others. And I pray that we would be equipped and bold and yet compassionate as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use this church to make massive impact uh, for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, and we'll look, at some, we'll look at some scriptures along the way. Some will be in your lesson, but you remember, remember somebody finished this, somebody finished this verse, all right? A fool hath said in his heart. Okay, now, now God wasn't saying that um, as an insult, but as a description of how foolish it is for a man to say in his heart that there is no God. And we'll get into why God called him a fool and why that's a foolish thing. But an atheist is someone who believes that there is no God. They believe in no supreme being. They believe in no spiritual life in the universe. A true atheist, that's what they believe. There's no spiritual life. They have an extreme naturalistic worldview. Somebody help me and just explain a little bit about what would that look like. What's a naturalistic worldview? Okay, nothing in the universe exists outside of our ability to perceive it. So, so essentially, they say there is no God, but with that worldview, who's God? We are. It's very, it's rooted in humanism is really what it is. There is no God, ergo, I'm God. <laughs> so there is a God. And that's why the Lord said it's such a foolish belief. But they hold to a very extreme naturalistic worldview. An atheist lives under the idea that we are born, we live, and then we die. The Bible described that pattern of living as we eat, we drink, we be merry. For tomorrow we shall die. And when we die, that's it. We cease to exist. There is no, there's nowhere else to go, okay? Death is a finality. Most, most atheists perceive themselves to be intellectually motivated they view religion as a crutch for weaker people, and witnessing to them is definitely a challenge, but it will be one of the most thought-provoking, engaging gospel conversations that you will ever have. I have had the most fun. I've, I've laughed, I've cried, I've been stumped talking to atheists, and I've enjoyed it. In both, in both conversations with these men, for three and a half hours, we were never combative, but we exchanged ideas, and I want to tell you, it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to push you to your limit because they are intellectual. They pride themselves on intellectual prowess, their ability to reason, and um, you need God because you have a deficiency, and I don't need God because I have an intellectual ability, right? And that's 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 somewhere where we get off, and it's it's pride, it's humanism, it's it's Satan's. It's Satan's lie from the very beginning of the, of, of the fall of man. You can be your own God. Right? And so that's it. Yes, sir? Yes. That's very funny. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are you? I don't believe in God. Uh, I heard somebody one time say, well, if the light's not on, why are you trying so hard to turn it off? <laughs> but anyway... Um, 
So here's just several tips that I've learned. And again, this is not, this is not a master's class, but this is going to be, I think, extremely helpful for you. When you're engaged with an atheist, here's a couple things that I think will, will help you. Number one, ask a lot of questions. Ask a lot of questions. Um, let me just say a show of hands. Anybody, anybody in here know somebody personally who is an avowed atheist? Anybody know somebody personally? I mean, look at, look at that. I mean, has anybody in here ever been in a theological discussion or a scientific discussion with an atheist, okay? So you all know exactly what we're talking about, but they, they, are, they have this ability to think um, in terms of reason and so forth, and we'll get into that. But, but, so ask a lot of questions. Some atheists like to use the shock and awe method against Christians. It's like they want to run into the conversation and like, I don't believe in God, and, and hope that Christians just run for cover, and like, oh, I don't want to talk to that guy, because they, they have this idea that, um, you know, that we think that they, you know, got horns and a pitchfork, and that they're this, you know, monster of a person, and we, sometimes Christians view atheists as an object, uh, rather than, uh, rather than a person, and so, um, one of the things that's really helped me is, is don't, don't get shocked. Don't, don't get rattled by that bold declaration, well, there's no God. Uh, don't let that shock you. Don't let that rattle you. Just be ready at that moment to counter that with a lot of questions. Um, Jesus asked questions. Questions are powerful. Does anybody know why questions are powerful? Yeah, questions, questions make you stop. I got it right here in your lesson. Make you stop and think. They make you reflect. And they make you explore your own heart and mind. I mean, questions are powerful. When Jesus, when Jesus said, hey, uh, who, who are men saying that I am? Oh, man, people are saying that you're Elijah. People say you're Jeremiah. You're one of the prophets. I mean, people are saying all kinds of stuff about you. And he said, okay, who do you say I am? And, man, everybody got quiet, and Peter's like, well, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus made people become introspective. He made them stop and think. He asked a lot of questions. He answered questions. Remember when he was 12 years old? He was in the temple asking and answering questions. And I think sometimes we, sometimes we as Christians can rush into an argument so quickly, and we just throw a case at somebody without getting them to really open up through, through questions and through thinking. Uh, here's a couple of little things to ask. Ask about their background. Um, with Abraham, you know, I, I said, you know, I mean, he told me, you know, I don't believe in God. There's no God. Okay. So we talked for a little bit and said, hey, where are you from? I, you know, my family's from a foreign country. And we immigrated into the U.S. and I was raised in Parker. And oh, is your family still in Parker? Yeah. Do you get to see your family often? No, we've had some issues. And so, okay, now we're getting somewhere. And we're opening up to, to some underlying things in this guy's life. That there are some things that, that, that can be root causes. But we're asking questions. We're just... You know, I'm not interrogating. I'm just asking questions. Um, were you raised in church? 
Yeah, we went to an Orthodox, Christian Orthodox church. Oh, what do they believe? I really don't know, but man, it was like I hated going to church. So you didn't, you don't think you, I mean, what, what would you think would be the biggest thing that you learned in that time of being in the Orthodox church? That I hated church. Okay. Um, so is your family still religious? Yes. Is that kind of part of the problem that you guys are having? That's part of it, yes. Hmm. So, you know, you told me that you don't believe in God. Were you educated in atheism? Did somebody educate you in this um, and help you come to that understanding? Well, absolutely. Well, where, what are you doing right now? I'm in school at CSU. And I've had professors that have helped me come to understand that I don't need God, that God is a crutch, that God is cruel and evil and Okay, so I mean, we're just talking, right? We're talking. I mean, we're, now, we're, now we're getting somewhere, right? And we're, I'm learning some things. And then I'm telling him, I'm, I'm from Denver. I was born in Denver. Really, where were you born? I was born at Rose Medical Center. Oh, man, that's, that's the bad hospital. I was born at another hospital. That's what he was telling me, you know? And so you were born on the other side of the tracks. I'm like, hey, bro, you know? And, and we, so now we have co- things in common. I was raised in Colorado Springs, and I came from a religious family or a Christian family, and I grew up as a Christian, and my dad was a pastor. And, oh, so you've come to this naturally. And, well, no, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. And, and so we started, again, questions. Getting into that. So ask a lot of questions. Remember, now watch this, remember this. You're not asking questions looking for a way to trap them. Your goal is to understand them. Right? That's my goal. I don't want to see him as an atheist. I want to see him as a person, a soul. I want to know who this person is. When you start asking them and you start trying to understand them, this will help you discover areas of commonality, points of agreement. That's what Paul did when he was in Athens. Paul was looking and he was, Paul was so burdened that they were taken over by all these idols. And then when Paul saw the altar to the unknown God, he realized, I've got something in common with them. Hey, Athenians, who is this unknown God? How do we know? He's unknown. I know who he is. What? How do you know? I mean, your prophets have said this. And he started quoting their poets and their prophets. And they were like, wow, yeah, that's, that's right. And Paul found commonality with the people at Athens. I can't wait to preach that in a few weeks. Well, maybe a couple months. We'll get there. But we're going to be there in the book of Acts. But we're, I can't wait to preach through that passage of Scripture. What, what, what do you do in a big city? Paul in a big city, man, he got overwhelmed and burdened and he began to discuss with them. Paul, Paul had conversation with them. He, they, they loved, remember, they loved to sit and hear new things. And Paul's like, I, I got a new thing that you got to hear, you know. And so he sat with them and he found common ground and commonality, something that was important to them. And he helped them discover the God they didn't know. And many got saved there and turned from their idols. No, they, 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 they will say there is no God. We're going to get to that, so don't jump too far ahead, but yes. Right, yeah. So this is, this is the foolishness. This is the foolishness, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But this is the foolishness of the atheistic worldview because like, like Al said a minute ago, they have to use God in defining who they are. 
So who are you? I'm an atheist. Well, what does that mean? I don't believe there is a God. And God is part of the definition of who they are. When, they, when, you, deal with, when you deal with an atheist, they're, they're, and we'll get to this in a minute, but they will tell you that there is no God. But we, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about, that's what they say, but we'll talk about where they are. So we find common ground. Uh, in your lesson, it says this, we, we can find common ground with an atheist in a mutual rejection of religious systems. We can find common ground with them in a love for science. See, let me tell you one of the false things that they come at Christians with. They think that people of religion and Christianity have had to check their brains in in order to believe this. They think that we believe blind faith. Well, let me tell you something. Faith is evidence. Faith is substance. I, I told Abraham, sitting at the table somewhere in our conversation, I said, Abraham, I'm not believing in spite of evidence. I'm believing in spite of consequence. The evidence is overwhelming. Faith is not evidenceless. We, we're not believing blindly. There is more evidence that the word of God is the word of God through secular history than, than there is that Socrates even existed. We, we have more documentation about Jesus Christ than nearly any figure, more than any figure in human history. There have been more books written about Jesus, extra biblical books about Jesus. So we're not believing in spite of evidence. That's not what faith is. But so so the thing is, man, I love science. Let's talk science. Because the creation reveals God. Let's talk. Man, let's, let's talk about the macro universe. Let's talk about macro science, the infinites of space. Let's talk about micro science into the delicacies and the complexity of DNA and cells. Let's get into that. I would love to get into that. So I have commonality with them. It's not like we've checked our brains and we're not intellectual. We can talk origins of species, origins of life. We can deal with, um, with, with, with galaxies and space and planets and life. and the or, you know Where did it all come from? We can deal with all of that. So we're not, we're not taking a... a, a, a a dumbed-down view of life. We can, be, we can find common ground in the love for science. We can find common ground in the love for, for reason. Do you, you know the gospel's reasonable? Do you remember what God said to them? Remember what he said in the book of Isaiah? Come, let us reason together. When you, make, you can make a reasonable case for the gospel. And I'm going to show you how, how to do that in a minute. So, so let me t- look, okay, for instance, I, 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 led a, I led a young man, that first young man to the Lord, you know, right now for all eternity. We started talking and I started asking questions. Where were you growing? We grew up in a Christian home, devout um, Catholic home, but abusive. Um, a lot of drinking, hypocrisy, anger, really broken family. Okay, hardship. Mom died of cancer when he was 14. And uh, yeah, I wept with him at the table. And he was broken by that. Why would God take my mom? And, and we got into this thing, and his, his disdain for religion, what religion did to my mom, what religion did to my family. And I picked up the silverware that was wrapped in the napkin, and I said, let me tell you something. 
I said, in here is the silverware wrapped in this napkin. And this napkin is going to represent religion. And in there, there's some truth, but it's covered in this religious cover, and God hates that. He said, what? I said, God hates religion. He hates it. I said, Jesus, if you ever read the New Testament, you're going to find that Jesus saved his most scathing remarks for law-keeping religionists. He hates organized religion. He said, really? And I reached and I took that silverware out and I took that napkin in the restaurant and I threw that napkin out. And I said, when Jesus came, this is what he did. He ripped away religion and he threw it away and he exposed their sin. Religion was a cover. Well, guess what? Just like that, he and I were on common ground. I hate religion. You hate religion. God hates religion. Jesus hates religion. We're all on the same team. So we've, we found commonality. You've got to learn to find that. Uh, many that, I've, that, that I had, they, they held a strong disdain for religion, but they hold a favorable view of Jesus. Both of these atheists, Abraham himself, and I said, well, what do you think about Jesus? I mean, we know it's a reality that he, this man, Jesus, lived. He wasn't a myth. He was a historical figure. What do you think about Jesus? And this is what they said. Well, he was a deep philosopher. I mean, his philosophy, he's got great philosophies about how you treat your neighbor and about how you love people. And so they had a very favorable view of Jesus. Did not believe that he was the son of God. But they saw, they saw that he was favorable. So you can find common ground and begin building a case for Jesus. Now listen to this very carefully. We're talking about asking questions. I ask these questions and I build this conversation for a while. And then I get to the main question. And here's my main question. I ask both of these men that. And by the way, I've led, I've led more than just these two. I'm just talking about here in this city in the last couple months. But I've led, I've led numbers of atheists to Christ. University of Southern Mississippi, I, I met a lot of, uh, I had a biology teacher that heard me preach on the radio every week. And he called me up one day and he was just scathing. I cannot believe that you're saying the things that you're saying on public radio, that you have the audacity. And I said, listen, I'd love to talk to you about all of this. And uh, he met me. Came to my office and met me and he was loaded for bear, man. And we got into biology and we started talking science. And we started talking life and we started talking cell structure, talking the numbers of, of life forms and how it was absolutely impossible to go from molecules to this broad spectrum of life. You can't do that. You can't go from a single cell organism in a Big Bang model to the billions of life forms that are on this planet. It's impossible. Biologically impossible. And we, man, we got into some, you know, now he was way beyond me. He was, he was a professor and I'm a pastor. He, you know, but I, but I could hold my ground and make him answer questions. And it took, now that one took a long time, but he and I, we, we would meet and eat and talk and we would fellowship and we would go the rounds. And uh, sometimes he'd leave mad, sometimes I'd leave mad, sometimes he would, sometimes he would leave disturbed. And, but, but I remember when Professor Who, H-U, uh, when Professor Who sat in my office one day and wept his way to Jesus. And surrender to Christ. And here's the question in every case I've asked, I've asked atheists. I get to this question, but I have to wait until I get to a place where, where 
I know that we've, we've found commonality and we've broken down some of the barriers. Here's what I ask them. I, I, I'll say this to them. I have not always been a Christian. But I have an amazing story about how I became a Christian. I would assume that you've not always been an atheist. I'd like to hear your story, how you became an atheist. Would you share that with me? Right over here at Post Chicken two months ago, that young man, when I asked him that question, you could see him kind of trying to formulate his religious testimony. What's my testimony of how I came to not believe in God? And he said, my mom was dying of cancer. My dad would come home and beat my mom, my, my sister and, my, and me. He didn't know how to deal with all of that. I would go upstairs. I'd say my rosaries. I would hold the crucifix. I would pray for Jesus to come and help us. And he was in my sister's bedroom. And he was spanking her, for, but beating her. And he said, I looked at that. You're not going to do anything about it. I'll take care of myself. And he said, and I went in there. And I beat my dad. And he said, I walked out of there and I said, I am God. 14. And that was his testimony of how he became an atheist. You're going to find that many of them, as they're telling you their testimony... And probably for the first time anybody's ever asked them for their atheistic testimony. You're going to be listening for the why. Be listening for the why. Because atheists often have a moment. It was a moment. It was in a, it was in a religious studies class. It was, in, it, was in my, it was in my biology class. It was in this moment of some loved one was dying of cancer and God wasn't doing anything about it. And you're listening for that. Why? One young man that I, I talked to, he's not been saved yet, but one young man that I talked to was, was terribly sexually molested by a pastor. And that's God and church to him. And so I'm done. And, and that's going to take a lot of work for a pastor to help him. But, but it's not the pastor. It's the pastor that's going to help him. But there's a why. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, there's a why behind their belief. Okay? So number one is ask a lot of questions. Number two, and this is, this is critically important to this, you have to connect relationally. This is, this is very, very important. Okay? I said it earlier, but you've got to remember, atheists are not monsters with horns. Okay, they're not adversaries to be defeated. They're real people, real feelings with real, real beliefs. These are people that know how to laugh. These are people that know how to cry. These are people that can connect with you like anyone else. So once you've heard their story or you've perceived their why, you're going to have to make that connection with them. So in the case of the young man who, who his mother died of cancer, after he shared all that with me and he talked about all that, I, I shared with him how my mom died a year and a half ago. 
and how we prayed for her healing. And I said, and instead of walking away from my mother's deathbed saying God didn't heal her, I walked away knowing that God had healed her in a much better way than if she would have still been in a 78-year-old body with good lungs only to have to face death some other way. She's going to go to a place where she will never die. But I shared with them and we made a connection that I knew that grief too of losing a mom. And we, we made those connections and we talked about that. Listen, listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to this very carefully. Paul was talking to Timothy because Timothy was laboring in a really difficult place here. And Timothy was very afraid of the gospel. And Paul had told him in 2 Timothy 1, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. He was in a very difficult place where he was ministering. And Timothy was getting instruction about witnessing. And Paul said, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid. I mean, don't, don't get into foolish arguments. Like, well, okay, well, you believe in God, so, so and you believe God's all-powerful? Yeah. So if God's all-powerful, can God create a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Oh, that's a dumb question. You know? And that's a foolish question. It's like, did Adam have a belly button? You know, these are foolish questions. So, and, I, and I've heard a lot of these questions, and you can get lost into rabbit holes and chasing all kinds of arguments. And what these questions are is they're deflections. Because I've asked, I've asked them when I've had the question, I said, okay, so let's just say that we, we figured out this, the formula that God couldn't pick up a rock. And once you realize, like, ha-ha, he couldn't pick up the rock, what about your sin? What would that do for your sin? So let's, let's talk about that, okay? So, so avoid foolish and unlearned questions knowing that they do gender strifes. And this is what we're, we're getting away from. Remember, we're not trying to win arguments. We're trying to win souls. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Do you remember what the Bible said of Jesus about his witnessing? Matthew chapter 12, the, the prophet Isaiah said of Jesus, in the come, he was going to preach the gospel. And here's what it said. He would not strive it said that a smoking flax or a bruised reed, a smoking flax he would not quench, a bruised reed he would not break. What did that mean? A smoking flax is a, is a little flicker of an ember. That Jesus would move so gently he would not snuff out the last bit of the ember. That the, bent, the bruised reed is a piece of grass, if you've ever seen one, that's been walked on or broken over. And the, the slightest breeze or touch is going to break it completely. That Jesus was so gentle that he would not snuff out the last spark of life in a desperate sinner. That he would not sit down with a bruised reed at the well and break her. Jesus would look at this broken woman and he would not break her, he would heal her. He did not come in the world to strive. He was gentle. Boy, we got to learn that as Christians. The gentleness of Jesus, the gentleness of the gospel... The, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, patient. Listen, I've sat with this one young man as he has railed on God and had to just, in patience is endurance, just endure that because I'm not God's defense attorney. I'm not his prosecutor. I'm a witness to the gentleness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And I mean, I've, I've, I've heard it and taken it, but be patient. And then it says this, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. 
Like you're, you're your own opponent. And I'm going to give you instruction of this. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. Really what this is saying here is that if I'm going to be gently leading them that are in opposition to themselves in the hope that God's going to illuminate their mind to the truth. How many of you know that God is working for us and God is working with us? Because God loves that person more than I do. And then he says this, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So I see these people as, man, they're in bondage. They're just captivated by, Satan has lied to them. He's taken them captive through some circumstance, through some some ideology, some philosophy, some science, some heartache, something. And I've, I've found the why now. In some of these cases, I have found the why. It was education or it was brokenness, but there's a why. This is why I don't believe in God. And then you connect with them. You don't strive. You don't fight. You don't argue. You don't, you don't rail. What was Paul's admonition to Timothy? Very, very, very carefully. Number one, Timothy, be straightforward. Be straightforward. But don't strive. Don't be gentle. Don't get in stupid arguments. And teach in a way that brings opponents to repentance. All right? Find common ground and lead them out of the snare of the devil into the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing like that, okay? So here we go. This is a big point. Number three. Number one, ask a lot of. Number two, connect. Number three, assume that they really do believe in God. So when they tell me, when Abraham looked at me square in the eyes and said, I don't believe in God, in my, in my heart, I said, yeah, you do. I didn't tell him that, but I'm like, yeah, you do. Yes, you do. You, you very much do. And we're, in, a, in, a, in a little bit, you're going to realize it <laughs> because God believes in you. And you believe in God, and I know why. Deep down in the most obstinate heart, there is a belief in God. This is why God said it's a foolish heart that says, I don't believe in God. Because you're lying against your own heart. So even though they make the claim that they don't and they reject God's existence, they really do believe he exists. How do I, how do I know that for certain? Listen to this, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now watch this. Who what? Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is what? Manifest or made known in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. All right. So we talked about the naturalistic worldview, this, the scientific worldview that it's materialistic, it's naturalistic, it's, it's things exist because I can perceive that they exist. It's, it's in my mind. It's in my perception. It's okay. But your perception and what you have seen has been a revelation to you that there is a God and God has showed himself to you as an invisible God, through visible things. Nature itself teaches you. And this is the thing that God said, I've, th these things are clearly seen. So it's not like they're blind or can barely see it. They're clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, watch this, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
Because that when they knew God, there was a time that they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is the description of a man who knows there's a God, who clearly knows there's a God, who God has manifest himself in truth in them, witness to them through conscience and through creation. By the way, that's the thing that you, you can't assume that they don't believe in God. You have to assume that they do believe in God because they have a conscience and they're walking in a, in a material world that has a creator. And God has revealed to them and made known his truth through their conscience and through creation. There's an internal witness. There's an external witness. They see the sun come up every day. They see it go down every day. They see life going on every day. There is a God who has ordered this world in a, in a precise order. Okay? So they know it. So don't assume that they, that they don't believe in God. Assume that they do. They can lay claim to atheism all they want, but at some point, they're going to ask you a question. And almost every time I've been asked this question, Professor Who, he asked me this question. If God is so good, then why does he allow evil? Einstein, genius Einstein, this was his conundrum with God. He, as he studied the, the quantum physics and gravity and all the things that, that he was blown away by in the physical universe... He said, there's no question that there is a God, but I can't believe in him because of the existence of evil. And this is the great conundrum that they're in. So they'll ask you that. If there's a God, then how does he allow evil to exist? At this point, let me tell you what happens when they ask this. Let me tell you what's really behind this. They have forgotten their atheism. And they have revealed to you that they're not challenged with the reality of God. They're challenged with the nature of God. What, what really is the case here is that there is a God that I don't understand and I don't like because my mom died. Because this happened in my life. I wrestle with that. So therefore, there's no God. So when you assume, when you make the assumption early on, they do believe in God deep down. It's in there. They have this truth and they do. That's going to keep you centered on getting to share the great story of God instead of getting bogged down with trying to prove he exists. I don't have to prove something to somebody who already knows it. I'm not, I don't have to prove God to them. How can you prove God to them? Right? Because their whole thing is I don't believe in him. So, I mean, here I'm going to try to prove God. <laughs> I was sitting at a cafe in Hattiesburg. Professor Who said to me, he said, um, he said, well, if God's real, why doesn't he just come down here, lift off the roof of this restaurant and just say hello? I said, well, he did come down here and say hello. We spit in his face and beat him and crucified him. Boy, he, 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 he didn't know what to say about that. Yes. Uh, what was your answer to Professor Who in this? Because I can see I'm going to show you in the next point because this is this is where we're going. So I'm so I'm assuming they don't that they know God that they do believe in God, and I'm I'm going to use that assumption that they believe not not to get bogged down in trying to prove God through quantum physics and through all these other things, 
We can talk about all of that, and all of that are evidences of God. But my job here is not to prove to you that God exists. My job is to tell you his great story. All right? That's what I'm trying to get to. Because they have framed God. Here's the thing. They have framed God through a naturalistic worldview. They have framed God through heartache and pain and suffering and war and holocaust. Right? Albert Einstein, the holocaust was it for him. Like, there's no God. Look what happened to the Jewish people. So they have framed God through suffering. They have framed God through atrocity, a lot of them. And then blamed God for that. Like, if God is good, then why does he allow evil? If God is powerful, why doesn't he destroy evil? Therefore, God is not good and God is not powerful. Therefore, he is not God. And that's, that's kind of their reasoning, right? So I've settled in my mind that God has not left himself without a witness. I believe the Bible that they hold the truth, and so we're going unt- to tell that truth. So let me get to number four, and we'll take some questions in a minute. Number four, frame the Bible as a love story. You say, what do you mean? Well, that's what it is. That's exactly what the Bible is. Listen, here's what I told, here's what I told Abraham. I said, Abraham, have you read the Bible? Yeah, I've read it. What do you think of it? Pff, I don't understand it. I said, let me, give you a, let me give you an elementary view of the Bible. The first three chapters tell us where we came from, why we were here, and what we were supposed to do. And it only took us three chapters, and we blew it. The last two chapters of the Bible tell us our eternal fate and where we're going to go, heaven or hell. Revelation 21, Revelation 22 talk about the wonders of heaven, the horrors of hell, and where people are going to spend eternity. So the first three chapters, where we came from, why we're here, and what we were supposed to do, we messed up. We blew it. There's only two choices of where we're all going to go. I said the rest of the Bible is about God's plan to redeem you. And the links that God went to redeem you because he loves you. And then I go here. I go right into this. I go, you know, if they have questions about science, I talk about science with them. But I always tell them the Bible contains science, but it's not a science book. The Bible contains theology, but it's not a theological book. The Bible is accurate historically, but it is not a history book. The Bible is a love story. It is God's love for us. The whole Bible is God's love story. Sometimes Christians don't understand that, but it's God's love story. But listen, I I go through the first three chapters, the last two chapters, and I talk about all that. But here's where I start. And I'm I'm not going to read the lesson. I'm just going to tell you what I Here's, here's, where I start. here's where I go. So when, when, he, when, doc, when, when Professor Who said, okay, if God's good, there's, why is there evil in the world? I asked him this question. I said, okay, so you fundamentally know that there's something wrong with the world? Well, yes. Okay, well, what's wrong with the world? Pfft, evil. Well, what's evil? What's good? Well, they're in a very difficult place because how do you define? Well, well, good is what promotes humanity. Oh, well, Adolf Hitler thought getting rid of the Jews and promoting the Aryan race was good for the world. Was that good? Well, no. Well, then how do you know that was bad? What tells you that what he did was bad? So what's the moral compass here? But here's the thing. You know intuitively in your heart that there's something wrong with the world. Is the world supposed to have war? No. Is the world supposed to have death? No. Is the world supposed to have suffering? No. Are children supposed to be raised without parents? No. 
Do people, are, are people supposed to get sick and die? No. Then let me ask you this. Outwardly, you know there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. Let's look inside. Is there anything fundamentally wrong with you? Well, I mean, I guess. Well, wait, what do you mean you guess? The things that you're supposed to do, do they come easy or hard? Oh, they're hard. The things you're not supposed to do, are they easy or hard? Hard. And who told you not to do it? So now I've, I've given them this understanding that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world. And then I asked, I asked Dr. Who this question, or Professor Who, I asked him this question right here. I said, so if there's something fundamentally wrong with the world and there's something fundamentally wrong with you, how do you know that? You've never seen the world any other way than what it is. And yet you know it's not supposed to be this way. You've never spent a day any other way than what you are. And yet you know it's not supposed to be this way. How do you know that? You, we've never, we, none of us have ever experienced a world without death, and yet we know something is fundamentally wrong with that. So there's no such thing as a natural death. Death is not natural. No one's ever died a natural death. Death isn't natural. It doesn't come natural to us. We don't even know how to absorb it. We don't even know how to grieve it. So how do you know that something is wrong with this world? And how do you know it should be something else when you didn't ever see it another way? Well, now, I'm telling you, for an intellectual, they're scrambling for answers, right? So I said, let me just tell you the, the story of two trees. There was a tree that God planted and said to Adam, you can eat of everything but this one. The question I always get is, why did he do that if he knew they were going to? I said, because he made you to love him and he made you for him to love you. The whole reason you exist is the love of God. God wants to love you. And you know what love has to have for it to be love? It has to have a test. There has to be a test for something to be love. So God said, I've given you everything freely at no cost to you. You did nothing to plant it. You did nothing to earn it. I've made it all. You can enjoy all of this. But this one is mine. And if you touch that, let me tell you what the consequence is. What you're up against, against losing fellowship with me and having death. Right now, you have life and you're going to have death. So when you come to this tree and you think about taking this tree, I want you to remember, you're choosing life with me or death forever. And I said, do you know what we did? Adam was so sinful and selfish that even with those consequences, he took and ate. And I said, so here comes God. I said, now the question. This one young man I was meeting at the restaurant the other day, a couple months ago, I asked him, I said, you, you got a fiance, right? Yeah, because we had talked about her earlier. You got a fiance? I said, what makes your fiance so special? I, mean, I said, she's probably a beautiful girl. She could probably have about anybody she wanted, right? Well, yeah. I said, what makes her so special? Well, that she loves me. I said, well, let me ask you a question. What if you found out that she had been unfaithful to you during this engagement, waiting on you to finish your preparation for your career, and she cheated on you. What would you do? I don't know what, I don't want to think about that. I said, do you know, 
that this engagement period is a test for your love to see if she's going to choose you above all others? And I said, and if she doesn't, the engagement period is now a test to what you're going to do if you're going to love her in spite of that. So Adam was not the only one being tested of that tree. God was being tested of that tree. Because what would you have done if you were God and the very people you made and gave everything to and said, don't do this, this one is mine, and there are major consequences and please don't do that, and they did it anyway because they loved themselves more than you, what would you have done? He said, I'd have killed them. I said, well, God didn't because he loved them. But something had to die, so he slew an animal shed its blood, and he gave them coats, and he reconciled them and restored that fellowship through a substitutionary death. And for thousands of years, God instituted substitutionary death to keep men engaged because of our sin. Something had to die so that we could maintain fellowship with him and that he could show his love to us. And he never required it from us. I said, then there's another tree. And there's another tree where God entered into our experience. He became a baby. He had to learn to walk and talk and hunger and thirst and all those things. He went through all of your experiences. He was tempted. He was tortured. He suffered. He wept. He was lonely and rejected. And everything that you can imagine a human being going through, that the worst thing, he took our sorrows and our sins. And he made them his own and he died not just a one man dying one death. He died as one man dying every man's death. No one has suffered like Jesus suffered. And God went to another tree to be your substitute. And I frame the Bible as this love story because there's something fundamentally wrong with this world. There's something fundamentally wrong with you and God entered into it to take that away and to give you salvation because he loves you. And frame the gospel as God becoming our substitute. Now with Abraham, Abraham came all the way to the place in the middle. He said, okay, I believe that there's a God. I believe that Jesus was good, but I just can't believe that he rose from the dead. And here's his exact words. That's just too supernatural. And I said, it is. I said, in fact, it's so supernatural that if it didn't happen, all Christianity goes away. All Christianity goes away. Christianity falls if there's no resurrection of Christ. So then here he is. Now, he's a logical guy. So here's what I did real quickly. I'll go through this. I told him, I said, okay, think about this. Every one of Jesus' followers, the night that he was taken by the Romans, every one of them forsook him. They fled. They denied him. Within 72 hours, every one of those men were willing to die for him. He showed himself alive to hundreds of people. When the New Testament was being written, those people were alive. The writers of the New Testament mentioned the people who had seen Jesus, eyewitnesses of him. At any time, they could have refuted that and said, no, that's all. And every one of those disciples died a, a, a cruel death defending the deity of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every one of them. What changed them in those 72 hours? I said, Jesus was so badly beaten in a Roman, Roman crucifixion, he did not go in the tomb and wake up and get the stone rolled away, overpower the guards and escape, and then propagate a myth that he rose. The coward disciples didn't come down there and overthrow the Romans and roll the stone away and steal his body. They were all hiding in a room fearful. 
The fact that they put the Roman guards in front of the tomb actually sealed the deal that Jesus had to have risen from the dead because nobody was getting in. He wasn't breaking out and overpowering the guards. The fact that they put the Roman seal on it entered it into official Roman documents. It's now a Roman tomb of a man killed on a Roman cross. And what happened to that man? I said he had eyewitnesses, men died for him, and that's when he had his head on the table and he looked up and said, Jesus is the Son of God. So the, the moral of the whole story is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And men are grappling with the evil of this world, not understanding where sin came from and what God has done in the suffering for our sin. All right, is, there, is everybody, got 